Blog Talk Radio. Hello, uh, this is Neil Kiernan, VTV. Um, I was a candidate for Congress as a libertarian here in Michigan in the 10th district. I ran against Candace Miller. A lot of things have happened since my last show, Uh, a lot of things, particularly about my political ideology and how it's changed. Um, I would think one of the, uh, probably the most relevant points is that I watched Zeitgeist Addendum and um, it really changed my outlook on a lot of things politically. Uh, more specifically, the issue of free market capitalism. Um, I was, you know, I, I, I always felt that, you know, if we were going to have money, that things would work, and uh, uh, basically that we would be able to have free market capitalism. But after spending a lot of time looking at um, the various uh, concerns about, first of all, just the technological innovations are getting rid of jobs faster than they're creating them. Things are being automated or through superior technology um, in travel, uh, things are being outsourced a lot. And one of the major things I think that affected my attitude, I mean, obviously watching Zeitgeist to Denim had a lot to do with it, but uh, I have met and spoke to Mr. Fresco, Jack Fresco and Roxanne Meadows about the Venus Project and its various ideas as far as to what could be done for the future. Uh, Essentially, uh, to break it down, you're you're looking at a resource-based economy, and there are a lot of things about that that scare uh, libertarians in particular, people who are obviously very worried about their uh, property rights and personal liberties as far as what they do with their money, but as was pointed out to me, and I think this was the, the final death for me of uh, believing in the free market, is that there is a concept known as cyclical consumption. Essentially, it starts at the top with the employer. The employer uh, pays the employee. The employee is then in turn a consumer. The employer is usually also a consumer. But then the consumer gives money to the employer by buying the products. This system essentially breaks down when you don't have anybody working anymore. Uh, and the funny thing about that actually is that it just it kind of comes to a screeching halt when people don't have any money to spend on anything because they don't have jobs, then in turn they lay off more people because they can't afford to employ as many people. And that downward spiral essentially brings you to where we are now, which is a situation as you see here in Michigan okay, that is there are just not enough jobs and companies, you know, as more people get unemployed, they have to lay off even more people, which of course in turn means even less money being spent. Less money being spent means, of course, well, then you don't have any more money again, and then once again you lay off even more people. So it's a vicious cycle. It really is, and it doesn't end. Um, You know, there were times before, I mean, honestly, everybody, generally libertarians blame everything on government intervention, and that's the only reason why we're having all these job problems. Oh, and by the way, I opened up the uh, chat room to anybody who wants to use it. If you look there on the blog talk, there's a a chat room function. But anyway, um, 
I do believe the government intervention has something to do with it, but I still believe that the, the government intervention essentially is generally brought on by corporate manipulation. And their answer to that generally is, okay, we'll just get rid of the government intervention, you know, basically the ability of government to intervene, and then all of a sudden all these problems will go away. But the, the ability to manipulate the market with your money is not just going to go away just because you don't have a lot of government provisions to allow it. They'll find other ways to do it, whether they buy out the media or, you know, to essentially, you know, influence public opinion, which they're doing already, you know, or corner the markets, this thing that's supposedly supposed to be impossible. But I just don't feel that that's the case anymore. Back in the time when the average person had power in the form of government, or in the form of corporations needing you to work for them, then absolutely we had the authority to try to make things balance out in a free market system. But with the advent of automation and you know, excessive amounts of outsourcing, <coughs> that power is quickly going away. Uh, and really what it amounts to is um, it's not going to come back. <laughs> there is no reason for it to come back. There, there is very little power that the consumer will have to do anything about this, and eventually the system will crumble on its own. So regardless of whether or not you want free market capitalism to continue to exist, it doesn't change the fact that the things that keep free market capitalism running are just, they're, they're dying. They're going the way of the dinosaur. They will not withstand the test of time. And that's essentially um, what I'm going to be talking about today. <laughs> Sorry, just commenting to somebody who's chatting with me. Um, in addition to the fact that I will be reading from the book, The Best That Money Can't Buy. Um, I was named as an official spokesman uh, for the Venus Project by Mr. Fresco and Miss Meadows when I met them here in Michigan. And it is my intention to do just that. I will speak for the Venus Project. If you have any questions, you know, please feel free to ask them. Contact me. Uh, if you develop questions later, get back to me. Uh, I can't always, uh, you know, basically take breaks in the middle of my show to do so, but there is a call-in line. If you look, it's one three four seven nine four five seven seven. Oh wait, I'm sorry, <laughs> wrong number. One three four seven nine four five seven seven four seven. That's the number you call if you want to call into the show. I will be trying to watch the switchboard while I'm reading the book. Um, and uh, do you have any questions about the Venus Project or about the flaws that changed my mind as far as free market capitalism, then please bring them up. I would also say, however, um, to cancel what's al already always seems to happen is that they immediately assume that, well, if you're not a capitalist, then what are you? You must be a socialist or you must be a communist. The fact is, is that those systems don't work either. Uh, one of the things that I think was kind of a problem with Zeitgeist Addendum is the fact that it doesn't address the, uh, the, the failures of communism and uh, socialism enough. Uh, if you listen to Mr. Fresco talk more often, then you will see that he had problems with what they were doing as well. But that wasn't focused on quite as much in Zeitgeist Addendum. In fact, there's only a single quote that I can remember from the movie Zeitgeist Addendum where he discusses the issue um, where the, you know, basically he discusses the issue of communism and socialism. And sorry about that. Once again, responding to chat. 
Um, communism and socialism do not address, do not address scarcity. Uh, recently, uh, due to a lot of complications in my life here in Michigan, I was essentially forced to decide whether or not I was going to allow my family to break up, have my children taken by the state, lose my home, uh, have my utilities turned off, or go ahead and do something that libertarians are not supposed to like doing and accept help from the state. So I ended up having to do that. And uh, in so doing, I went to the Work First program, which is required of you. Uh, essentially, you have to go to this program and, you know, prove to them that you're trying to get a job, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I did try to get a job, even though it's really hard because there's nobody to watch my kids. So essentially, it means I have to work opposing shifts to my significant other person. <laughs> I use the term loosely. Uh, and... Uh, that's the only way I can get a work, in, you know, get work at all. But it didn't matter. I, I was not picky whatsoever. I wouldn't have cared if I was shoveling excrement for a living. I went to absolutely every business in the area. Nobody was hiring. Uh, my wife has a job working at a fast food restaurant, and that is essentially the only money we have coming in that is not from the state right now. And I hate it. Uh, but that, that's pretty much the, the reality of things. Uh, I had to, once again, to make the same choice that my own mother did. My mother ended up getting on welfare, and she didn't care for it too much. But she had to make a choice between her family and her pride, and she chose her family. But anyway, when, when I went to uh, th this Work First program, I, I met people there. And the, the story, I mean, it was basically, it was people from all walks of life. You know, you expect to see, you know, your typical welfare crowd, but that, that's not the case at all. I was looking at people who had college educations. I was looking at hardworking blue-collar workers. You know, these are people, many of which were very ashamed to be there. They didn't want to be there. They didn't want to be in the situation they were in. But the reality was the, the system has left them out to dry. Their jobs don't exist anymore. They, they have either been outsourced or automated choice. Now, the reason I bring this up is because it points to another flaw in socialism. Socialist programs are entirely dependent on taxes. When nobody's working, you don't have any taxes. They can't tax you if you don't have any money. And in fact, what ends up happening instead is just like my situation. The government is essentially giving me money to live. I don't pay any taxes on any of it, which of course just in turn drains from the system. It's only a matter of time at that point before the system crumbles. The wealth system here in Michigan is full of unfortunate people who are underpaid and overworked and have nothing to show for it. And as a result, you're dealing with a lot of very frustrated human beings. They're, they're doing their best essentially to get to you, but you're a part of a stack of people that just keeps getting larger every day uh, of people who really have, you know, once again, it's, it's, it's have people who have no choice. And almost all of the people I talked to while I was at that meeting told me their story, and their stories almost always revolved around my job was outsourced, uh, my job was automated, nobody's hiring, they can't hire because there's no business, there's no business because nobody's hiring. The, the economy just goes into a downward spiral. So neither the free market answer to this you know, situation nor the socialist answer was going to work. I just don't believe anymore that taxation is entirely to blame. It is not, you know, that, and that's something that libertarians say immediately. Well, if it wasn't for all these oppressive taxes, I'm sure that has something to do with it. But none of that, it, that's all a drop in the bucket compared to the money that a company will save by either automating everything or just going to a third world country where people are paid 30 cents an hour if they're lucky and are willing to accept the lifestyle of essentially a slave 
you know, n- nobody can compete with a business that's labor force does that. It, it doesn't, you know, taxes or no taxes, it doesn't matter. It, let's say that we just got rid of minimum wage in the United States. Even if you did just that, then you would have, you know, you would be in a position where these companies can make these kinds of demands from labor. And I realize that more than ever. I look around me every day now, and I look at the monetary system, and I look at the profit motivations in society and the various things that they do, and I, I just I don't like what I see. It has entirely changed my attitude about things, to think about things from the perspective of how many different evils that have been visited out in our society were created by the need to profit and by the monetary system that we follow blindly. Now, a lot of libertarians obviously feel that going to sound money would somehow solve the problem. I don't really know that I agree with that anymore. Uh, Inevitably, the only thing that has been a constant throughout all of this is that the, the money system always manages to get corrupted again. And that's essentially what you hear from all of these people. When I interviewed Brian Moore, the uh, presidential candidate for the Socialist Party, very nice guy, and I asked him about the various failed socialist programs, socialist people, you know, people like, you know, obviously the socialism being kind of like the less angry cousin to communism. I pointed out people like Kim Jong-il, and, you know, he's like, well, those aren't good socialists, those are bad socialists. Now, you hear the same thing, the same excuses given about capitalism. People say, well, you know, that's not a good capitalist. You know, any company that would say, you know, lay off a billion people or whatever to make extra money or, you know, or enslave human beings uh, in subhuman work conditions, you know, th- those aren't good capitalists. Those aren't good examples. You know, or obviously the current monetary system is, is just not a good example. You know, if we went to this other monetary system, then everything would be fine. But the truth is, is that any time you have a situation where you get more from something than you put into it, you're going to have an imbalance. You're going to have a situation where uh, profit essentially will eventually break things down. It is just a matter of time. It is just as inevitable as corruption taking hold in communism and socialism that a different kind of fascism, the kind that is easier because you don't have to conquer things through capitalist fascism. You just buy them. You don't have to control people with your guns. You control people with, your, with their wallets. You don't adhere to what's going on. Well, then we just cut you off. You know, you don't get to work. You don't have a job. You know, and I acknowledge that this obviously is that some, you know, some labor unions got really out of control, but that doesn't change the fact that inevitably it keeps coming back to the same thing. Greed will prevail and when I listen to anarcho, um, anarcho-capitalists tell me that, you know, we should use greed, as, you know, and turn greed on itself, and that somehow that's going to create all of this wealth for everybody, I, I just, I want to laugh at them, you know, because it, it just doesn't seem realistic to me. The only thing that happens out of all of that, essentially, is every time we deregulate something, they figure out a way to exploit it. Every time we regulate something, they figure out a way to exploit it. And that's why I just think that money kind of like nuclear weapons, there is no such thing as a good nuclear weapon. There is no such thing as a good monetary system, whether it's a communist monetary system, a socialist monetary system, or a capitalist monetary system. The concept in of itself is flawed. It is an archaic notion. It does not work anymore in our modern society. Your ability to trade 
your labor in exchange for money that is then therefore exchanged for goods is ju it's just a matter of time before that goes away entirely. As it is right now, the lifestyle of labor is being dragged to the floor because you have two choices at this point. You can either be a robot, which is obviously not a choice that you can make, or you can choose to live your life the way that they do in third world countries where big corporations show up, tell you that you're going to work 12-hour days, and that you're going to accept the bread comes from their table because you're so desperate at that point, you have no choice. People often talk about that. They say that you do have a choice, but you don't. You can't choose not to work for people, especially not if everybody is doing the same thing. If everybody is only paying crap, well, then you have no choice but to accept either crap or crap from, of a different color, essentially. You don't have a choice at that point. You either work for these people or you starve. That's not a choice. Now, another thing that I would point out that generally the libertarian capitalists would say is that, well, then why don't you start your own business? First of all, I would say, well, if you didn't have any money, how the hell are you going to start your own business in the first place? It takes money to make money. Money doesn't come out of thin air. You know, it, it doesn't just, you know, manifest. And especially if the reason that you don't have a job is because you were laid off, because the market is depressed, because everybody's unemployed, why do you think that you're going to do any better at that point than the company that laid you off? How are you going to be able to do any better at that point? How are you going to be able to sustain yourself? In many cases, I just feel that a lot of the things that they say just don't it's a lot of it is just it's utopian and it depends on a certain amount of pipe dreaming to, in order to assume that people are going to play fair. The only thing that is consistent is that in a world where you have to compete for the resources that are necessary for survival, that is one thing that will be consistent, and that is greed. What the Venus Project offers is a different attitude on how to approach this, and that means you get rid of the need, you basically you get rid of the need for greed. You get rid of any benefit from being greedy in the first place. You create enough abundance that everything that is needed for life is so abundant that anybody who needs it gets it. You cultivate creative thinking and innovative thinking, and you make that something that's worth achieving in your life, <coughs> not just the acquisition of pieces of paper that were printed by some private corporation intent on profiting from your work more than you did. And essentially, I'm going to quit blabbing at this point about my various reasons for no longer being a free market capitalist. But uh, if you're listening, then you're either somebody whom I have linked this to, or maybe one of my previous listeners returning, or maybe you know, you're just somebody who just stumbled across this. But um, I am now involved with the Venus Project. I still consider myself a libertarian. I am no longer a free market capitalist. And it is my intention to run for Congress again in two years. I'm debating on perhaps taking up the, uh, the Democratic ticket because of people like Dennis Kucinich and Senator Mike Gravel. I have a feeling that in addition to the fact that I've, I believe I can fit in there, it's also just a matter of um, the Republican Party in my area is completely locked down and it's a total tool of um, the neocons and Robert Dennison my democratic opponent in the last election took me aside and told me that he really liked my energy and he liked the things that I was saying and 
he told me that I needed to take, you know, continue the fight because he was bowing out. He had ran against her over and over and over again, and uh, he he was done. He needed to spend more time with his family, and he asked me to continue to fight. I'm considering on taking him up on that offer, and I'm considering uh, taking up the uh, the party affiliation for the Democrats, despite the fact that I don't in any way approve of the majority of Democrats I know. Uh, I'm not changing my attitudes about personal liberties at all. In fact, if anything, uh, the Venus Project represents more personal liberty because you're then free from working from working to make somebody else rich for the rest of your life. Uh, and I still value a lot of the teachings of Ron Paul. I just don't believe in free market capitalism anymore. So all of that being said, uh, for those of you who are listening because you were getting ready for me to read the book, I'll be doing that very shortly. Uh, I'm still a stay-at-home dad. My children here are with me. Uh, currently, I have them both taking naps. It is possible that I may have to take a break at some point during the course of this broadcast. If I do, I'll try to find something to entertain you while I'm gone. Don't take offense, but I'm not getting paid to do this. <laughs> Welcome to my free broadcast um, for the Venus Project on V Radio. V uh, Radio now stands for Venus Radio. Oh, yeah, let me read uh, real quick. I want to debunk something really funny that the Alex Jones crowd said. So because of the fact that there's a lot of atheists in the, the Zeitgeist movement, um, the Christians, of course... No offense to any Christians who are listening who this does not apply to, but they needed to find some way to discredit the movement. So they considered that the Venus Project, you know, because Venus is the morning star, and the morning star is Lucifer, then that must mean the Venus Project is Satanist. Well, I got news for you. The reason that it's named the Venus Project is as simple as the fact that it was set up in Venus, Florida. That's it. If it had been in Chicago, they'd have called it the Chicago Project. There is no dark, insidious reason for the name Venus. Um, the crazy conspiracy theorists at that point, I mean, i got to tell you, I still consider many conspiracy theories to be valid or at least things that you should be concerned with. But I have to tell you, after watching Zeitgeist Addendum and the various ways that people reacted to it, the conspiracy nuts at this point are exposing themselves incredibly. The, the Zeitgeist Addendum is supposed to be New World Order propaganda, as if that makes any sense. Because clearly anything that goes against capitalism must obviously be a New World Order you know, propaganda issue. Um, as if the New World Order would in any way benefit by a people who are liberated as a society by technology and set free. Uh, a society where there are no elites at all. Okay? That does not really benefit the New World Order's you know, belief structure at that point at all. So, anyway... Um, I am going to read the book now. It is 22 minutes into my broadcast. This is a two-hour broadcast, so I will be going at this for a while. And um, once again, as I said previously, I reserve the right to take breaks on occasion. And thank you for tuning in to V Radio. Uh, I would also take a moment to point out that I have been given offers by various radio stations to become involved with them. Uh, oh, <laughs> And before I get started, uh, for those of you who used to listen to me on RTR Radio, I am no way, in any way, um, any longer affiliated with RTR Radio, Restore the Republic Radio. Uh, my fallings out with Ray Powell finally just reached a point that I just couldn't stand it anymore. Uh, to be quite blunt, 
one of the things that I recognized was that unfortunately when a, when a media organization has a specific agenda and they push that agenda, they will silence you if you don't go along with it. And the general pressure that goes on at Restore the Republic Radio began to remind me of the sort of thing you see at Fox News. Uh, Ray Powell has a lot of influence over what kind of programming is allowed to be shown or, or heard from. Uh, in the past, I went, you know, they had gone so far as to kick me off the air once uh, because they didn't like what I was saying. And so uh, I still have friends there, but I don't go to the website. I don't get involved in the chat room. I, I'm not interested in that part of the movement anymore. Um, and so that being said, uh, let me take a moment here to take a look at the chat. Looks like a couple people have joined. Uh, I don't know that I've ever heard of a libertarian against the free market. You can be a libertarian Marxist, so what's your solution? You can't reject every option without offering a solution. Or you can create your own business in the age of specialization. You save. Uh, no, I'm not a Marxist. Um, Marx had a couple of good ideas, but uh, for the most part, Marx didn't understand science. You have to be able to um, overcome scarcity, period. That's the major difference. In communism, they always claimed that they were going to be giving out everything, but that system also uh, relied heavily on everybody working. And the Venus Project instead wants to approach things from the perspective of eliminating as much work as possible and automating it through technology. So as a result, you don't have to do any of that. But uh, let me take a look here and see. Oh, I got a, one other person here. Looks like that person who was giving those questions already logged out. But uh, once again, there is a chat room if you want to join it. And uh, I'm going to start reading from the book now. If for some reason the call drops and I get quiet, uh, I use Skype to get into my show. And uh, that's also how I can use my computer for various other things you may need, like, for example, playing music and other things for you. Um, but, uh, you know, I will do my best to try to pay attention to the switchboard to make sure that I'm online. For some reason that I get, you know, log off, I will do my best to try to get back on. <sighs> anyway, <coughs> pardon me. The Best That Money Can't Buy, Beyond Politics, Poverty, and War, by Jacques Fresco. Managed to get it signed, too. <laughs> All right. We're going to start with the introduction. Few technological achievements are as impressive as the ability to see our own planet from outer space. The beautiful sphere suspended against the black void of space makes the bond that the billions of us on Earth have in common. This global consciousness inspires space travelers who then provide emotional and spiritual observations. Their views from outer space awaken them to a grand realization that all who share our planet make up a single community. They think this viewpoint will help unite the nations of the world in order to build a peaceful future for the present generation and the ones that follow. Many poets, philosophers, and writers have criticized the artificial borders that separate people preoccupied with the notion of nationhood. Despite the visions of and hopes of astronauts, poets, writers, and visionaries, the reality is that nations are continuously at war with one another, and poverty and hunger prevail in many places throughout the world, including the United States. 
So far, no astronaut arriving back on Earth with this new social consciousness has proposed to transcend the world limitations of the world where no national boundaries exist. Each remains loyal to his or her particular nation-state and doesn't venture beyond patriotism, my country wrong or right, because doing so may risk their positions. Most people we face in the world today are of our own making. We must accept the future depends on us. Interventions by mythical or divine characters in white robes descending from the clouds or by visitors from other worlds are illusions that cannot solve the problems of our modern world. The future of the world is our responsibility and depends upon decisions we make today. We are our own salvation or damnation. The shape and solutions of the future depend totally on the collective effort of all people working together. Science and technology race into the future, revealing new horizons in all areas. New discoveries and inventions appear at a rate never seen before in history, and the rate of change will continue to increase in the years to come. Unfortunately, books and articles attempting to describe the future have one foot rooted in the past and interpret the future through today's concepts and technology. Most people are comfortable and less threatened with this perspective on change, but they often react negatively to proposals suggesting changes in the way they live. For this reason, when speaking of the future, very few explore or discuss changes in our social structure, much less our values. People are used to the structures and values of earlier times when stresses and levels of understanding were different. An author who wants to publish steers I'm sorry, an author who wants to publish steers clear of such emotional and controversial issues. But we feel it is time to step out of the box. In this book, we will freely explore a new future, one that is realistically attainable and not the gloom and doom so often presented today. Few can envision a social structure that enables a utopian lifestyle as compared to today's standards, or that this lifestyle could be made available without the sweat of one's brow. Yet thanks to our labor-saving machines and other technological advances, the lifestyle of a middle-class person today far exceeds anything that even kings of the past could have experienced. Since the beginning of the machine age, humankind has had a love-hate relationship with its mechanical devices. We may like what the machines do for us, but we don't like what they do to us. They take away our means of making a living and sometimes our sense of purpose, which derives from thousands of years in which heart hand labor is the primary means of meeting human needs. Many fear that machines are becoming more and more complex and sophisticated. As dependence on them grows, we give up much of our own independence and come to resemble them as passionless, unfeeling automatons whose sole purpose is work, work, work. Some fear that these mechanical children may develop minds and wills of their own and enslave humanity. Many worry about conformity and that our values and behaviors will change so that we lose the very qualities which make us human. The purpose of this book is to explore visions and possibilities for the future that will nurture human growth and achievement and make that the primary goal of society. We will discuss the many options and roles individuals will play in this cybernated age in which our world is rebuilt by prodigious machines and governed by computers. Most writers of the 20th century who presented a vision of the future were blinded by national ego or self-centeredness and didn't grasp the significance and meaning of the methods of science as they might be applied to the social system. Although it may appear that the focus of this book is the technology of the future, our major concern is the effect a totally cybernated world would have on humanity and on the, on, on the individual.
Of course, no one can predict the future with precision. There are simply too many variables, new inventions, natural and man-made disasters, and new uncontrollable diseases could radically alter the course of civilization. While we cannot predict the future, we will most surely live it. Every action and decision we take, or don't, ripples into the future. For the first time, we have the capability, the technology, and the knowledge to direct those ripples. When applied in a humane manner, the coming cybernated age could see the merging of technology and cybernetics into a workable synergy for all people. It could achieve a world free of hunger, war, and poverty, a world humanity has failed to achieve throughout history. But if civilization continues on its present course, we will simply repeat the same mistakes all over again. If we apply what we already know to enhance life on Earth, we can protect the environment and the symbiotic process processes of living systems. It is now mandatory that we intelligently rearrange human affairs so as to live within the limits of available resources. The proposals of this book show limitless untapped potentials in the future application of new technologies where our health, intellect, and well-being are involved. These are potentials not only in a material sense, but they also involve a deep concern for one another. Only in this way can science and technology support a meaningful and humane civilization. Many of us think I'm sorry, many of us who think seriously about the future of human civilization are familiar with stark scenarios of the new millennium, a world of growing chaos and disorder, soaring populations, and dwindling natural resources. Emaciated children cry out from decayed cities and villages with mouths agape and bellies swollen from malnutrition and disease. In more affluent areas, urban sprawl, air and water pollution and escalating crime take a toll on the quality of life even for those who consider themselves removed from these conditions. Even the very wealthy are at a tremendous disadvantage because they fail to grasp the damage from technology applied without social, without social concern. Given the advances in science and technology over the last 200 years, one may well ask, does it have to be this way? There is no question that the application of science and technology can carry us with confidence and assurance into the future. What is needed is a change in our direction and purpose. Our main problem is a lack of understanding of what it means to be a human and that we are not separate from nature. Our values, beliefs, and behavior are as much part of a natural law as any other process. We are all an integral part of the chain of life. In this book, we present an alternative vision of a sustainable new world civilization unlike any social system that has gone before. Although this vision is highly compressed, it is based upon years of study and experimental research. We call for a straightforward redesign of our culture in which the age-old problems of war, poverty, hunger, debt, and unnecessary suffering are viewed not only as avoidable, but also as totally unacceptable. Anything less results in a continuation of the same catalog of problems inherent in the present system. That was the conclusion of the introduction. <laughs> nope, I'm not Peter Joseph, guys. Sorry. <laughs> You'll just have to settle for me. Um... I am seeing a question here from Azzy. Neil, how will the Venus Project help prevent bad human behavior? And I don't think the Venus Project can do anything. Remember human nature. 
Okay. Human nature. Uh, one of the things that was brought up at the recent um, Venus, more specifically the Zeitgeist presentation that was given in New York City was this issue of human nature because we hear an awful lot about it when we're discussing things. People are like, well, how are you going to get rid of all the greed and all that other jazz? Well, the fact is, is that greed, first of all, is only natural in a situation where there is a scarcity to be concerned about. Greed is a survival instinct. It develops out of the fact that you're going to get a certain amount of social status if you have a certain amount of the resources to yourself. Um, if you, you know, essentially, especially if you're scared of scarcity, you're going to find yourself being greedy, even if you don't want to be, because you have to be. When scarcity is cultivated, inevitably greed will result. Greed is not just something that's just inherent in mankind. Greed is something that is created by the environment. In fact, all human behavior is created by the environment. Now, as as a question, how will the Venus Project help to prevent bad human behavior? Now, you have to remember, first of all, that the biggest difference between the Venus Project and most other systems that you've heard of is that we address human behavior at its root causes. It's not just a matter of making a law, building a prison, and all that other jazz, because none of that even works. You have to figure out exactly what it is that's causing these people to behave this way in the first place and then react accordingly. Now, as libertarians, we talk about the war on drugs. We suggest that the violence in the war on drugs is caused inherently by the fact that drugs are illegal, therefore creating a scarcity, which therefore in turn creates a profit for selling them. The same thing is true of alcohol. During Prohibition, people made a lot of money selling the illegal alcohol. Now, that's an example of a cultivated scarcity that created profit for a few people that were willing to sell it. Now, when you take that into account, you get rid of that scarcity, then the violence accordingly goes away. One of the things that was also presented in the Zeitgeist presentation is the statistics involved with what happens when the unemployment rate goes up. The crime rate goes up with it. This invariably proves at that point that all crime is created essentially through people who are in a desperate situation and they will do whatever they have to to survive. In many cases, either the crimes are directly resulting of people being in a situation of scarcity and having to do things to survive or through neuroses. You get stressed out. I mean, trust me, I'm in a situation right now where the monetary stress system is stressing me out like crazy. Um, the only like, time I've ever even considered being angry with my children to the point where it would be dangerous has almost always been created by me being frustrated with my situation at home, not having enough money to pay the bills. Am I going to lose my house? Uh, is my wife going to leave me? All of these things generally created and all revolving around money. Okay? In order to deal with bad human behavior, it is about prevention of the human behavior. You can grab people, you can punish them, you can arrest them, you can put them in prisons where they're going to be grouped with a bunch of other people who are there for that same reason. That only breeds resentment in the person in question. It doesn't solve the problem. And in many cases, it just makes them more efficient criminals. So what the Venus Project would suggest is that you look at the causes of, um, the inherent causes of crime. You address what those problems are, and after you've done that, the crimes stop on their own. Not because you got more guns, more police, more laws, but because of the fact that there's no benefit to, creating, you know, to doing any crime in the first place. And that's exactly 
what the Venus Project suggests is, for example, uh, if you look at the crime rate as compared in the places where people don't have any money to the crime rate of places where people do have money, it, the, the statistics are right there in front of you. The only reason that the money is relevant is because the money is the means by which people purchase the resources they need to, re to survive. It really comes down to just that. It's that simple. Now, if you cultivate abundance and you eliminate scarcity, if people have the things that they need to survive without having to fight to get them, stress goes away. You know, it, it's, it, just think back to yourself. Everybody has had financial problems at one point, except for some of the lucky aristocracy, okay? And you think back at the way it made you feel. How did it affect the way that you as a person were? I mean, I know that it's brought out the worst in me. So you have to think very carefully on that. Evaluate, for example, all the various things in your life that have been directly impacted by the monetary system. Evaluate how things would have went differently. This happens in a lot of things. You know, I know people, for example, who had to leave their relationships because they couldn't travel to go see their significant other because they didn't have the money to move in with their significant other or maybe they didn't have the money to move out of their parents' house. There's so many different things where money, 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 money becomes a complication, and I don't think people really realize that. Take some time, hell, spend like, uh, I'd say an hour, writing down the various things that money has done to your life. The solution at that point is, if we come together, bring the resources of the world together towards the purpose of creating enough abundance for everybody, then crime and the negative behaviors that, you, that, so, that are associated with scarcity will go away on their own. I hope that answers your question, Azzy. <laughs> I know you already knew the answer, but thank you for playing devil's advocate. Uh, and in short, human nature is crap. Uh, one of the other things that they pointed out in New York, Peter managed to find in a video uh, of a study of a scientist who went out to live with some apes. And uh, these apes, uh, of course, the more dominant apes are the ones who end up eating any kind of special food they come across. Well, they came across some food that was infected with tuberculosis. So all of, these, all of the mean apes died, and that left just the nice guys and the females. So it radically changed the society in which these apes lived in because at that point there were no more jerks <laughs> beating everybody up to get things. Um, it changed the way that that structure worked that whole group, that family group, and the way that they did things. And it changed overall in such a way that when new apes came to the situation, they would show up and they'd try to do their I'm going to bully you thing to get more food. And those apes cast them out for it. They ostracized the mean apes. So essentially this means that apes can learn how to be peaceful. If that's the case, there is no human nature. There is human nature only in that people will do whatever it takes to survive. If you make that easy, the violence goes away. <sighs> anyway, time to move on to chapter one. If you have any further questions, put them in the chat room. I may take a caller if you like. Chapter one, a design for the future. The future is fluid. Each act, each decision, and each development creates new possibilities and eliminates others. But the future is ours to direct. 
In the past, change came so slowly that generations saw minimal difference in the daily business of surviving. Social structures and cultural norms remained static for centuries. In the last 50 to 100 years, technology and social change accelerated at such, I'm sorry, to such an extent that governments and corporations now consider change management a core process. Hundreds of books address technological change, business process management, human productivity, and environmental issues. Universities offer advanced degrees in public and environmental affairs. Almost all overlook and major elements in these systems Human beings, I'm sorry, almost all overlook the major element in these systems. Human beings and their social structures and culture. Technology, policy, and automation count for nothing until humans accept them and apply them to their daily lives. This book offers a blueprint to con consciously fuse these elements into a sustainable future for all as well as for fundamental changes in the way we regard ourselves, one another, and our world. This can be accomplished with technology and cybernetics being applied with human and environmental concerns to secure, protect, and encourage a more humane world for all. How can such a prodigious task be accomplished? First, we must survey and inventory all of our available planetary resources. Discussion about what is scarce and what is plentiful is just so much talk until we actually measure our resources. We must first baseline what there is around the world. This information can be compiled so we know the parameters for humanizing social and technological development. This can be accomplished using computers to assist in defining the most humane and appropriate ways to manage environmental and human affairs. This is basically the function of government. With computers processing trillions of bits of information per second, Existing technologies far exceed the human capacity for arriving at equitable and sustainable decisions concerning the development and distribution of physical resources. With this potential, we can eventually surpass the practical of political decisions, I'm sorry, the practice of political decisions being made on the basis of power and advantage. Eventually, with artificial intelligence, money may be become um, I'm sorry, money may become irrelevant, particularly in a high-energy civilization in which material abundance eliminates the mindset of scarcity. We have arrived at a time when the methods of science and technology can provide abundance for all. It is no longer necessary to consciously withhold efficiency through planned obsolescence or to utilize an old and outworn monetary system. Although many of us consider ourselves forward thinkers, we still cling tenaciously to the old values of the monetary system, we accept without sufficient consideration a system that breeds inefficiencies and actually encourages the creation of shortages. For example, while many concerns about environmental destruction and the misuse of technology are justified, many environmentalists draw bleak scenarios about the future based on present-day methods and shortages. They view environmental destruction from the point of view that existing technologies are wasteful and used irresponsibly. They are accustomed to outmoded concepts and the economic imperatives of sales turnover and customer appeal. Although we recognize the technological development has been mis misdirected, the benefits far outweigh the negatives. Only the most diehard environmental activist would turn his back on the many ele elevating advances made in areas like medicine, communications, power generation, and food production. If human civilization is to endure, it must outgrow our conspicuous waste of time, effort, and natural resources.
One area in which we set this is architecture, or sorry, sorry, where we see this is architecture. Resource conservation must be incorporated into our structures. With a conscious and intelligent application of today's science and technology, we can recreate the wetlands and encourage the symbiotic process between, the, between and among the elements of nature. This was not doable in earlier times. While many urban centers grapple with retrofuting new, more efficient technologies into their existing infrastructures, these efforts fall far short of the potentials of technology. Not only must we rebuild our thought patterns, but much of our physical infrastructure, including industrial plants, buildings, waterways, power systems, production and distribution processes, and transportation systems must be reconstructed from the ground up. Only then can our technology overcome resource deficiencies and provide universal abundance. If we are genuinely concerned about the environment and fellow human beings, and want to end territorial disputes, war, crime, poverty, hunger, and other problems that confront us today, the intelligent use of science and technology are the tools with which to achieve a new direction, one that will serve all people and not just a select few. The purpose of this technology is to free people from repetitive and boring jobs and allow them to experience the fullness of human relationships, denied to so many for so long. This will call for a basic adjustment in the way we think about what makes us human. Our times demand the declaration of the world's resources as the common heritage of all people. In a hundred years, historians may look back on our present civilization as a transition period from the dark ages of ignorance, superstition, and social insufficiency, just as we view the world of a few hundred years ago. If we arrive at a saner world in which the maximum human potential is cultivated in every person, our descendants will not understand why our world produced only one Louis Pasteur, one Edison, one Tesla, or one Salk, and why great achievements in our age were products of a relative few. In looking forward to this new millennium and back at the dimmest, dimmest memories of human civilization, we see that the thoughts, dreams, and visions of humanity are limited by, limited by a perception of scarcity. We are products of a culture of deficiency which expects each confrontation and most activities to end with a winner and a loser. Funding restricts even technological development, which has the best potential to liberate humanity from its past inefficiencies. We can no longer afford the luxury of such primitive thinking. There are other ways of looking at our lives and the world. Either we learn to live together in full cooperation, or we will cause our own extinction. To fully understand and appreciate this coming age, we must understand the relationship between creation and creator, the machine, and, as of this writing, that most marvelous of mechanisms, the human being. Chapter 2, Changing Values in an Emerging Culture. Any attempt to depict the future direction of civilization must include a description of the probable evolution of our culture without embellishment, propaganda, our national interest. We must re-examine our traditional habits of thought if we wish to avoid the consequences that will occur if we do not prepare for the future. It is unfortunate that most of us envision the future within our present social framework using values and traditions that come from the past. Superficial changes perpetuate the problems of today. The challenges we now face cannot be addressed with antiquated notions and values that are no longer relevant. Imagine a new planet with the same carrying capacity as Earth, and that you are free to design a new direction for the society of this planet. 
you can choose any shape or form. The only limitation imposed upon you is that your social design must correspond to the carrying capacity of that planet. This new planet has more than adequate arable land, clean air, and water, and an abundance of untapped resources. This is your planet. You can rearrange the entire social order to correspond to whatever you consider the best of all possible worlds. Not only does this include environmental modification, but also human factors, interpersonal relationships, and the structuring of education. This need not be complicated. It can be as uncluttered an approach, not burdened by any past or traditional considerations, religious or otherwise. This is a prodigious project calling for many disciplines, determining the way inhabitants of your planet conduct their lives, keeping in mind for whom and for what ends this social order is being designed. Feel free to transcend present realities and reach for new and inventive ideas to shape your world of the future. An exciting exercise, isn't it? What we propose is nothing more, nothing less than applying that exercise to our planet. To prepare for the future, we must be willing to test new concepts. This means we must acquire enough information to evaluate these concepts and not be like travelers in a foreign land who compare everything with their own hometown. To understand people of another place, we must set aside our usual expectations of behavior and not judge by the values to which we are accustomed. If you believe today's values and virtues are absolute and ultimate for all time and all civilizations, then you may find our projection of the future shocking and unacceptable. We must feel and think as freshly as possible without the limitless possibilities of life patterns humankind may explore for attaining even higher levels of intelligence and fulfillment in the future. Although individuals like Plato, Edward Bellamy, H.G. Wells, Karl Marx, and Howard Scott have all made attempts to plan a new civilization, the established social order considered them impractical dreamers with, utopi with utopian designs that ran contrary to human nature. Against these social pioneers was the status quo of vested interests comfortable with the way things were. The populace at large, because of years of indoctrination, went along unthinkingly for the ride. Vested interests were unappointed guardians of the status quo. The outlook and philosophy of the leaders were consistent with their positions of advantage. Despite advances achieved through objective scientific investigation and the breaking down of long-standing fears and superstitions, the world is still not a reasonable place. To make it so have failed because of selfish individual and national interests. Deeply rooted cultural norms that assume someone must lose for someone else to gain, scarcity at its most basic, still dictate most of our decisions. For example, we still cling to the concept of competition and accept inadequate compensation for people's efforts, i.e. the minimum wage when such concepts no longer apply to our capabilities and resources, never mind their effect on human dignity and any possible elevation of the human condition. At this turning point in our civilization, we find problems complicated by the fact that many of us still wait for someone, a messiah perhaps, the elusive they, or an extraterrestrial to save us. The irony of this is that if we, as we wait for someone to do it for us, we give up our freedom of choice and movement. We react rather than act toward events and issues. The future is our responsibility, but change will not take place until the majority lose confidence in their dictators and elected officials' ability to solve problems. 
It will likely take an economic catastrophe resulting in enormous human suffering to bring about true social change. Unfortunately, this does not guarantee that the change will be beneficial. In times of conflict between nations, we still default to answering perceived threats with threats, developing weapons of mass destruction, and training people to use them against others whom we regard as enemies. Many social reformers tried to solve problems of crime within the framework of the monetary system by building more prisons and enacting new laws. There was gun legislation and a three-times-and-you're-out provision in an attempt to govern crime and violence. This has accomplished little, yet requests for funding to build more prisons and hire more policemen fare far better in legislatures and voting referendums than do pleas for education or aid to the poor. Somehow, in an era of plenty, we have meanly approved punishment as an answer to all problems. One symptom of insanity is repeating the same mistake over and over again, expecting a different outcome. Our society is, in this sense, truly insane. The Manhattan Project developed the first atomic device to be used against human populations and launched the most intensive, dangerous weapons buildup in history, the Manhattan Project was also one of the largest and best financed projects ever undertaken. If we are willing to spend that amount of money, resources, and human lives in time of war, why don't we commit equal resources to improving lives and anticipating the humane needs of the future? The same energies that went into the Manhattan Project could be used to improve and update our way of life and to achieve and maintain optimal, the optimal symbiotic relationship between nature and humankind. If our system continues without modification involving environmental and social concern, we will face an economic and social breakdown of an outworn monetary and political system. When this occurs, the established government will likely enact a state of emergency or martial law to prevent total chaos. I do not advocate this, but without the suffering of millions, it may be nearly impossible to shake our complacency about the current ways of life. I hate to say it, but I agree with him. It's really hard to get people to understand what's going on, and unfortunately, particularly in the United States, people have take their freedoms for granted so much that it's going to come down to that. Um, people who actually are concerned about their freedoms are labeled as crazy, um, and essentially, it, it makes it very difficult to spread any kind of message. The Ron Paul Revolution ran into the same problem. People don't want to believe that there's a problem. They want to believe everything's fine, so it's a real effort to change that. Now, out of the dark ages, scientists in the space program face different challenges. For example, space scientists must develop new ways of eating in outer space. Astronauts' clothing must withstand the vacuum of outer space, enormous temperature, uh, temperature differentials, and radiation, yet remain light in, uh, in weight and highly flexible. This new clothing design even calls for the development of self-repairing systems. Their challenge is to conceive of common items in completely new ways. In space, for example, clothing has no longer functions, uh, I'm sorry, clothing no longer functions as just body covering and adornment. It becomes a mini habitat. The space age is a good example of the search for newer and better ways of doing things. As scientists probe the limits of our universe, they must generate newer techniques and technologies for unexplored frontiers and never before encountered environments. If they cling to the concepts of their earlier training, their explorations will fail. Had our ancestors refused to accept new ideas, the physical sciences could have progressed little beyond the covered wagon. Many young engineers, scientists, and architects face this dilemma. 
bold and creative, they exit institutions of higher learning and step out into the world eager for change. They set out with great enthusiasm but are often beaten back and slowed by the established, established institutions and self-appointed guardians of tradition. Occasionally, some break away from traditional concepts and become innovators. They meet such tremendous resistance by antiquated building codes and other restrictions that their daring concepts are soon reduced to mediocrity. Many of the dominant values shaping our present society are medieval. The idea that we live in an enlightened age or an age of reason has little basis in fact. We are overwhelmed with valid information concerning ourselves and our planet, but have no inkling of how to apply it. Most of our customs and modes of behavior have been handed down to us from the Dark Ages. It was difficult for the early forms of life to crawl out of primordial slime without dragging some of it with them. <laughs> so it is with the I'm sorry, so it is with the entrenched value systems. The most appropriate place for traditional concepts is a museum or in books about the history of civilization. The twenty first century will reveal what most people never suspected which is that the majority of us have the potential of people like Leonardo da Vinci, Alexander Graham Bell, and Madame Curie, if we are raised in an environment that encourages genuine individuality and creativity. This includes all of the other characteristics thought of as the special and privileged heredity of great men and women. Even in today's so-called democratic society, fewer than 4% of the world's people have supplied us with the scientific and artistic advances that sustain social systems. Shaping Human Values Humans of the future, though similar in appearance, will differ considerably in their outlook, values, and mindset. Social orders of the past that have continued into the 25th, I'm sorry, 21st century consistently seek to generate loyalty and conformity to established institutions as the only means to sustain a workable society. Countless laws, often passed after a misdeed has occurred, have acted in an attempt to govern the conduct of people. Those who do not conform are ostracized or imprisoned. In the past, many social reformers and those called agitators by their detractors were not generally angry, maladjusted individuals. They were often people with a sensitivity and concern for the needs of others who envisioned a better life for all. Among these were abolitionists, advocates for women's suffrage, and child labor laws, those who practiced nonviolent resistance to oppression and the so-called freedom fighters. Today we accept without question the achievements of those reformers who face violent opposition, imprisonment, ridicule, and even death from vested interests in the established order. Unfortunately, most people are unaware of the identities of those individuals who helped pave the way towards social enlightenment. Many of our parks have statues of warriors and statesmen but few have any monuments to the really great social innovators. Perhaps when the history of the human race is finally written, it will be from the viewpoint of individuals in an alien and primitive culture who sought change in a world wide, while actually supporting an economic structure that imprisons its citizens under more and more debt. They claim that all have the opportunity to rise to the top through individual in initiative and incentive. To appease those who work hard but do not achieve their good I'm sorry, to appease those who work hard but do not achieve the good life, religion is there to assure them that if not in this life, they will obtain it in the next. Our habits of thought and conduct show the effectiveness of constant 
and unrelenting propaganda on radio, television, in publications, and in most other media. They are so effective that the average citizen is not insulted when categorized as a consumer. If the citizen's sole worth to society was the user of goods, or as if the citizen's sole worth to society was the user of goods, these patterns are gradually being modified and challenged by the Internet and the World Wide Web. Most people expect that our televisions, computers, communication systems, methods of production, and delivery of services, and even our concepts of work and reward, will continue to improve without any disruption or distress within our present value systems. But this is not necessarily so. Our dominant values that emphasize competition and scarcity limit continued progress. The most disruptive period in a transition from an established social order to an emergent system comes when people are not prepared emotionally or intellectually to adjust to change. People cannot simply erase all the beliefs and habits acquired in the past, which constitute their self-identity. Sudden changes in values without some preparation will cause many to lose their sense of identity and purpose, isolating them from a society they feel has passed them by. Another factor limiting the evaluation of alternative social proposals is a lack of understanding of basic scientific principles and the factors shaping culture and behavior. The conflicts today between human beings are about opposing values. If you manage to arrive at a saner future, conflicts will be about problems common to all humans. In a vibrant and emergent culture, instead of conflicts between nations, the challenges will be overcoming scarcity, reclaiming damaged environments, creating innovative technologies, increasing agricultural yield, improving communications, building communications between nations, sharing technologies, and living a meaningful life. Work and the New Leisure From early civilizations to the present, most humans had to, had to work to earn a living. Most of our attitudes about work are a carryover from these earlier times. In the past, and still in many low-energy cultures, it was necessary to fetch water and to carry it to, carry it to one's dwelling place. People, get, people gathered wood to make fires for heating and cooking, and fuel to burn in their lamps. It would have been very difficult, and still is for some, to imagine a time when water would rush forth in your own dwelling at the turn of a handle. To press a button for instant light would have seemed to be tragic. I'm sorry, seemed to be magic. <laughs> Not tragic. People of ancient times probably wondered what they would do with their time if they did not have to engage in these burdensome tasks that were so necessary to sustain their lives. In most developed countries, tasks that were once so vital to people's very survival are no longer necessary, thanks to modern technology. Today, people attend schools to acquire marketable skills that enable them to earn a living in the workaday world. Recently, the belief that one must work to earn a living has been challenged. Working for a living to supply the necessities of life may soon be irrelevant as modern technology can provide most of these needs. As a result, many jobs have gone the way of the Iceman and the elevator operator. Perhaps we have a semantic problem with the word work. The idea of freedom from work should include the elimination of repetitive and boring tasks that hold back our intellectual growth. Most jobs, from blue-collar assembly worker to professional, entail repetitious and uninteresting tasks. Human beings possess an untapped potential. 
that they will finally be able to explore once they are free of the burden of having to work to earn a living. At present, there are no plans in government or industry to make economic adjustments to deal with the displacement of people by automated technology. It is no longer the repetitious work of laborers that CyberNation is able to phase out, but also many other vocations and professions. Engineers, technicians, scientists, doctors, architects, artists, and actors will all have their roles altered, sometimes drastically. Therefore, it is the imperative that we explore alternatives so as to improve our social constructs, beliefs, and quality of life to secure, um, to secure and sustain a future for all. All right. Uh, pardon me for a moment here, folks. I need to get something to drink take a brief break. Once again, the uh, chat room is open. You can get, a, get into it once again on Blog Talk Radio. You should be able to find it. Let me uh, take a look here. I'll see if I can find something to entertain you all while I'm doing this. And um, once again, you're listening to V Radio. I am reading uh, the book by Jacques Fresco, The Best That Money Can't Buy. And um, thank you for tuning in. You'll have to excuse me for being a little bit rusty. It has been quite a while since I have broadcasted, so a lot of the stuff that I would normally just have at my fingertips is not here right now. But if you'll be patient, so will I. I don't know how many people have actually tuned in now or how many are going to be listening to it later. But um, I plan to continue to do this show fairly regularly. And once again, as it's been considered, I may consider uh, doing my show on another network soon. I've had a lot of them ask me. So time will tell. <laughs> Let me take a look here. Find something interesting to play. And I know I have something. This is actually from the radio show Living on Purpose, and it has some stuff from Jock Fresco in it. I'm going to try to go ahead and get this to work. I hope it sounds good. It's been a while since I did this. Pardon me just a second. All right, here we go. My name is Jock Fresco. I work with Roxanne Meadows, as my associate. I am director of the Venus Project. The Venus Project emphasizes the redesign of a culture. And you're listening to Living on Purpose, Radio Ear Network. Lynn Thompson here of Living on Purpose in the home of Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows in Venus, Florida. And we've just found our way out here from Sarasota today on April 13th, 2008. Hi, Jacques. It's so nice to meet you. How are you? I'm nice great. Meeting you. Yeah. So I became aware of you through Dr. Tomorrow from Vancouver, and you were just saying that the last time you saw him was about eight years ago. Eight years ago. Yeah. How did you first meet him? Well, I think I met him at a futures meeting, and I heard some recordings, and I was very interested, and I invited him out. He came out, and he walked around. He appeared to be interested in what we were doing. I'm sure he was. I really don't know very much more 
about him except that he points out new electronic devices and what they can do. He tries to make people aware of what's coming. Their website, which is thevenusproject.com. So Roxanne Meadows, how did you and Jacques Fresco first meet over 30 years ago? I was on a cruise ship doing portraits, bad portraits, <laughs> for a living, <laughs> traveling around, seeing many beautiful places, and somebody approached me and talked to me about Jacques' ideas, talked to me about a lot of his inventions, and he had tape recordings of lectures that Jacques did. Jacques used to lecture, this is when he was in Miami, he used to lecture in, at universities, around the world in Miami and at his home three days a week. I went and listened to the tapes in this person's room on the cruise ship and they were more interesting than anything that I'd ever heard. It made more sense to me than anything I'd ever heard. So I got off the cruise ship and went to his lectures and started taking his drafting lessons and I really learned how to draw. I went through four years of art school and didn't know what a vanishing point was. And Jacques taught me the laws behind art. He has an extremely interesting way of teaching art and it can be taught to anyone. So I went through his courses and I learned how to draw on his design, so it was very interesting. And then he taught me how to do model making and I started reading his book, going to his lectures and working with him. And we were together for about 33 years now. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so you knew him when he was, oh, 59 then? About 60, yeah, 59, yeah. Yeah, 59. Yeah. Do you mind me asking how old you are? 59. You are 59 now? Yeah. And you met when he was 59? Right. I love that. 59. Oh, wow. Now he's 92. <laughs> yeah. Huh. But luckily for me, he's still going very strong. <laughs> wow, what an amazing partnership. Very impressive. In the past, Jacques used to design hundreds of ideas and patents and inventions, but he found that they would use his planes to go faster and cheaper and quicker to bomb and destructive reasons. And he, he designed hip prosthesis and a lot of medical devices, but only the wealthy could use them. And he would help kids and people who were drug addicts and alcoholics, but he found that for every one he saved, the system produced 500 more. So he really began to think about how to redesign the system which is for the benefit of all people and the environment. What this system is, is really the intelligent management of Earth's resources for everyone's advantage and for the environment. Not for a few minority right. who want to take right. advantage of the whole thing. There's yeah. no subservience, nobody taking advantage of anybody else because you have access to everything and anything. So how many people have come here to visit the project, the Venus Project? We have people coming from all over the world all the time. <laughs> every week wow. during the weekdays to visit with us and learn more about the Venus Project in this direction. Has anyone gone further with it, taken it back into their communities to try to use the model? Well, there's a lot of people that go back and try and spread these ideas in this direction and try and get Jacques to speak at different conferences and try and do things like you're doing, put them on the air and put them on TV. And he is well known all over the world and is written up all over, but recently his designs are not implemented yet, but it's really the film that we think is the most important because it's the ideas and the direction for a sustainable and sane future that we feel is more important to get out there. And the film would introduce these people to this direction and the ideas in an entertaining way. 
and then hopefully we'll get a group of people who may want to do something and build the first city. Mm -hmm. That would be amazing. I mean, well, you've started the first small project community here right. anyway. I mean, it's remarkable. Or the research center. Yeah. It's really old, pristine Florida. It's a well-kept secret in the middle of the state. Most people go to the coast. It's quite beautiful. We'll go this way. And we dug all the waterways, and then the alligators came, and the otters, and we had deer and fox, and there's even bears, a bear pack in, in the area. Wow. I've only seen one bear in 30 years, so it's quite exciting. Well, I saw my first alligator yesterday in um, oh, Mayaka Park. They don't bother you. Don't go down and sangle your feet off the edge of the water, though. We found a beautiful place in the southern Ecuador in Loja, in Vilacabamba, in the mountains in the Andes. And we both really loved it as we were visiting a friend there that bought a lot of land. And we were buying some from him. Jacques may have an opportunity to do a museum of the future there. Now, Future by Design, I see on this building. Yes, that's the name of our nonprofit organization. Okay. But we're better known as the Venus Project. But this is the building that we named here where Jacques filmed his models. This is 22 acres. Well, we arranged it. So you can't see another building when you're in any other building. There's woods and streams and ponds encircling each building. And so it's like you're isolated in each building. This is what we wanted to do to show the outskirts of the city that Jacques designed, what it would look like kind of a much smaller scale. And you can see that the bridge sticks over cantilever over the water. You don't see any structures underneath, but there are structures. There are several beams that go across the road, and they're embedded in three-foot by three-foot concrete, so you can hold up a herd of elephants on this bridge. Everything that Jack builds is overbuilt, very strong. Mm -hmm. We don't have to worry about it. And the bridge that we're standing on, too, is concrete and steel. There's usually water under there, but Florida has had a drought for a couple of years. And then we have pathways through the woods and around the lake. We ride bikes and walk, and that's a pretty view. What is the goal of the film that you're putting together? What is your vision for the possibilities with this? We hope we can get the film out before things get worse in the society and maybe a lot more people lose their homes and lose their jobs and start to lose confidence in their government. But it will actually take something like that, I think, before people look for something else, look for other alternatives. But there really aren't any alternatives out there other than trying to fix things within this monetary system, which causes the problems in the first place. So we're hoping we can get this film out, which will really show how we get from here to there and what the possibilities of a positive future could be like. And then maybe at that time, people will get together and say, let's try this, because all other social systems have failed. And this one, too, we feel is on its way out. The guest house. I love the guest house. Even our pump houses here. Yes. Concrete and steel, and they are not going anywhere in a hurricane. So that just houses pretty well. This may be the only 22 acres that stays for a hurricane. <laughs> Everybody will want to live here then. <laughs> well, people have said that this is a hurricane shelter of Venus. <laughs> Kiddingly, but it really is. Well, yeah. It doesn't really have any other hurricane shelter. This is just so beautiful here. we got to have a pick of the guest house. Well, we don't want to disturb the photographer. 
Do you show that on your internet? Yeah, if we link in some of these audios with the visuals, that would be good. Oh, my. I love the. We have the working tables all over. That's all we ever do. Our guests work. <laughs> we work. It comes in Lynn Thompson with Living on Purpose on the epic tour with Jacques Fresco here and Roxanne Meadows, who's a wonderful hostess in Venus, Florida. We're all fascinated with your vision. And one of my questions is, do you call this a utopian vision? No, not at all. It's a transition toward the future, building a safer world free of war, poverty, hunger, and most of the things that plague humans today. We can overcome that. Not in hope and dreams, but with technology and applied science, we can build a world far different than the world we live in today, where war would be unthinkable, or another person wanting to hurt another person would be unacceptable. Kids would be brought up, here's how it's done, if you want to know that. We have a group of kids, and they have their building things, little animated things, and older kids of different nationalities come over them and give them tips on how to improve it. Black kids, Orientals. So every kid becomes extensional to one another. Every person that I meet has extended my life, opens up everything. So you're pleased to meet everybody. But in the past, the distant past, when one nation went to another, they didn't go there to help that country. They went there to exploit it. Cheap labor, take their oil, their land, their minerals, whatever they can take. So nations become very suspicious of one another. They don't trust each other because of the past. Thousands of years they've been doing that. But in our world, when we understand by sharing technology with the world, everybody working together to make the world a better place, we would benefit millions of people fast. For example, they say, you know, uh, what would you do about handicapped people? We'll work on every device, remove organs if we can. No more digging up nickels and dimes for heart disease or cystic fibrosis, going around with a little box. What do you need in your lab? One electron microscope or two? We have the resources. We'll make it available. The stupidity of digging up nickels and dimes for food care packages for Africa does not solve problems. Makes you feel good. You walk down the street with a protest sign, you feel good. That's what the trouble with the liberal is. The liberal thinks man is being exploited. Industry should pay help higher wages to If they got that, we would lose our competitive edge in national trade. You understand? The country would collapse. If labor unions win out, I'm not against labor. Don't misunderstand me. They want a piece of the pie, that's all. But if you have labor unions, if they succeed, we couldn't compete with Japan or China when you died. So even if you succeeded in electing, I don't want to name anybody, a very liberal human being, a decent person, and he upgrades the scale of everything, taxation for the rich would be higher. Competitive edge would be lost. So the system would collapse sooner. If a guy like Ralph Nader were elected, political honest, I believe he's a real honest guy. And if he were elected, he'd probably be shot by the established order, or he would make things so great for the poor that we would lose our competitive edge. He would have health care for the old and disabled, you know. 
He couldn't enact that legislation. There's not enough money you can collect for that. But not knowing those things, Ralph Nader thinks technology is something else, and decent guy in government is something else. It's not. It's about overcoming scarcity. When you eliminate scarcity, if you ever attain that, there's no more people hitting you on the head taking your watch. If they can have it, it's cheaper to give a person a watch than have these kids run wild. It's cheaper to make things available to people. In other words, as technology improves, I'm sure you've seen motion pictures of new production methods moving in real fast. Chemicals, all kinds of objects are treated by machine fast. And so that tells you that a guy on the production line, he can't move things that fast. They say to me, they always ask me this, can a machine be better than the designer? I know a little guy that designed a machine to pick up a freight train and empty it. He can't do that. The guys that design production methods today in machines, automation, they, machines work so fast, no human can do that. So the idea, will a machine surpass the performance of the designer? It'll always surpass the performance. Remember when women used to scrub clothing down by the river? The washing machines, you just turns it on. But that's crude method, even today. But the future has so much new stuff to offer, like high-definition TV, and people are satisfied, because they are not told what comes after that. Mm -hmm. They're not told we'll be able to culture livers and kidneys and hearts, so we don't need to plead for people for a heart transplant or sell their organs. This would be considered socially offensive. It'd be socially offensive for us to have machines watching over people, because is that unacceptable? Machines do not monitor people, they only monitor resources. Do you understand that? Make things available to people. Monitoring people would serve no useful function. How do we make the leap from where things are now with increasing mm -hmm. monitoring and such an emphasis on war? How can we make the leap from where we okay. are now? First, I'm sorry to say this, it takes an economic collapse first. No one's about to give up what they have. Because I remember the last depression, people came into the Berlin, the Joyce Aircraft Factory government, they said, we're taking over your plant. And Henry Berliner said, you know, uh, why? He said, you haven't paid taxes on your machines in three years. He said, I've been had orders for airplanes. as a depression not. Take the goddamn factory. So a factory that you own that isn't producing anything, you're not going to defend it. You don't care anymore. So as the system collapses, let's say they have container ships to take off one container at a time. You design a ship that takes the whole container section off, floats it off. You can't sell the old ship. No one wants it. Do you understand? So factories that have been surpassed by China and India, which is going to happen. In other words, if a man doesn't put his factory up in China, if he just ships up and ships it back to his factory, he's going to put his factory up over there. The engineers are going to do that. And then the India is going to come up with engineers. India is training lots of engineers that are very sharp and very interested. And so India will then come up with new ideas. And if America doesn't move, if America tries to claim to what was best 40 years ago, we will become a happier nation. Because Americans get happy, they feel good, they build an automobile plant. Now they'd like to amortize the cost they put in to get it back. In the meantime, China might ask, maybe you don't need to stack our fenders. Maybe you can generate a whole automobile by moving molecules. That's nanotechnology. When nanotechnology comes in, 
We won't worry about shortages. We'll be able to make a ham sandwich without the ham, without killing animals. We'll be able to make protein tissue. We'll be able to make kidneys. We'll be able to make steel or iron or titanium by arranging atoms into whatever molecular structure we want. That promise is about, according to nanotechnologists, not me, about 15 years off. Let's say 25 years off. We'll be able to make things too easy to set a price tag on them. It's too much bother, all the paperwork. If you still don't understand me, if it rained gold for two days, people would bring it all in the house, fill every drawer with the gold, the attic, but if it kept raining gold for a year, they'd sweep it out, take their rings off, and throw it away. Do you understand that? Things have no value except in terms of their scarcity. Inventions come about, first of all, through need. You have to have a need for something. For example, there's an island off Ireland where women wear a harness like a cow, and they carry two buckets down from the hilltop to fill it with water to cook with. Then they go up the hill with it, and then they have to skin animals and melt down the fat for the lamps. So in the movie, we have a guy walking over and says, someday, young lady, you'll turn a little gas and the water will flow right out where you live, hot and cold. And someday, you'll press a button and lights will go on. And you'll turn it down and make it brighter or weaker. And she says, what will women do? You understand what I mean? If you're brought up in that culture, that would seem that your life work, you know? And I want to show people what will women do? What will people do with all this technology? They, they think work is normal. Work is offensive. It's the worst thing you can do to people is put them in a monotonous job. Even psychologists tell me they hear the same old crap. It's very boring. It's a problem that people have. So they will be schooled in the future to understand people. And so you don't talk at them. You talk to them. You know? And most people don't. They use you as an outlet, you know, blah, 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 you know, but they don't even remember what they said the next day. So we want to change all that. But it's going to take films, and the film will cause the uh, sophisticated people to catch on right away. We don't need to convince everybody on Earth. We just have to convince less than 7,000 people to operate everything on Earth. You don't need millions of people agreeing with you. The few people that do these things will help direct society. You know, when I say direct society, I mean not to their own values, but to what is necessary to live in peace. What are we going to do about religion, though? Oh, we support all religions, so they don't have to go out and dig up nickels and dimes anymore. But on Sunday, you have all comparative religion, what different people believe all over the world. Then you have agnostics, what they believe, what atheists believe, what scientists believe, and you turn it on or off. But every point of view is on the air, okay? And we feel we're going to make soap operas, just like you got today, that look like soap operas. But in the soap opera, the little girl says, Daddy, I'm going to university to become a cultural anthropologist. He says, what's that? And it shows what they do. And it shows 
what science is. Science is not just another thing. I'm a banker. This guy is a scientist. This man is a lawyer. All those professions that serve nothing, like investment banking, bankers, advertising be phased out because they do nothing. They add nothing to society. So what will people do with their time? Your television set shows what is needed, what professions are needed. Bridging the difference in German, in the South, we need you to go there. And the guy has to talk in a Southern accent. He goes in the South. We make different films for Atlanta, Georgia, different films for kid, Tennessee, the backwoods. You know what I mean? You can't make a film and put it out there. But the film I want to make is general to tour the world to get enough people together to form a foundation. Then I tell them, you have to form organizations and you have to bring in criticism, find out what people find distasteful. And if they don't know enough about it, we'll have another film called Lifestyles of the Future, the professions of the future, you know. Like there's a camera that follows people in the movies to you know, to stand there and take the picture. All the lighting moves to the optimal lighting for that position. It was all computerized. And so you just tell them what kind of film you want or what kind of house you want. And if you tell me that you're a sociologist, I will get you a library on the history of sociology, films on that subject, and what's new, and how it relates to other fields. So we want your home to be very well equipped, like the internet, see, so you can get anything you want. Who would have believed that the internet puts you in touch with the world, with the libraries, and art, and music, and everything else, and in the future, it'll even be better, you know what I mean? It wouldn't be some little screen you look at. So we want to show that. Because if you just tell people that we'll use more technology and science in the future, they picture in their own heads whatever they can see. I don't want that. I want to say this is the kind of furniture. Like if you see a guy in the, in the movie, he comes into a home and he sees a gadget that looks like a big mushroom. He says, what's that? And it says, sit on it. And the guy sits on it, and it adjusts to his body contours. Then he lifts one leg, you see what I, and it comes up to meet him. He assumes different positions, and it supports him. It's very thin. And he says, how the hell does that work? And he's looking underneath for mechanisms. You don't see any. It's all built in the memory of a thin disc. There's another scene where normal people are visiting the home of the future. And there's a family sitting around watching full wall TV. And the little girl said, boy, we've got it all. We've got sound around, full vision TV. They fade out, right? It shows the next several years later. They have a globe and they dial Madagascar on the earth. They move a little button to Madagascar and the ceiling disappears and birds fly right through you. You're in Madagascar. You can smell the flowers. And we don't grind up flowers and project it into the room. We affect the olfactory system to a rose or jasmine or whatever it is. So you think you're smelling, you can feel the breezes. And so then you dial the Great Barrier Reef of Australia. You set the little ball there. And then bubbles come up all around the ceiling. The sharks swim right through you. You know what I mean? And this little girl says, we've got it all. You know, we just try to get, prepare people for tremendous change. You have to help 
adapt to change emotionally and intellectually. Because, like I said, if you took your grandmother to Miami Beach with her girl's butts hanging out, they've gone too far. You know, she may be a wonderful person, but she's grown up in a different time. So we want to orient people for change, that the world that you have now is only transitional. Our language is always growing. People are changing. Well, somebody says, is that good or bad? Well, we don't deal with those terms. You know, machines to me are an extension of human attributes. You know, when a doctor says to the nurse, scalpel, sutures, we have a unit that understands language and gives them that right away. Do you understand? You don't need a nurse standing there. You don't need a nurse moving a fat guy in bed, turning him over, wiping his butt. The bed itself turns him over. And there's a thing that looks like this that can pick a fat guy up out of bed onto a stretcher without the nurses busting their butt trying to do that. You know what I mean? People don't know what technology can do. They just think in terms of what they know. You see what I mean? The future is a fantastic place. So the world I'm talking about is not like this world at all. It's so different. You say, well, what will people be like? They certainly will not be like us. They'll look like us, but their reactions will be different. Their facial expressions are different. What they enjoy or don't enjoy, what they aspire toward, will be determined by the nature of conditions in the future. Like I said before, if you took your grandmother to Miami Beach, and the girls are walking around bare-butted, she'd say, honey, they've gone too far. <laughs> so I'm saying, you can't ask people today to step into the future and like it. They wouldn't like it any more than your grandmother brought to this world with all these cars going up. She'd be so confused. And other people in the past would never believe there can be thousands of automobiles and the average person owning an automobile. That's not possible. Now, a computer 10 years ago would cost $10 million, what computers do today. So here you got it in your home, and you're in touch with the whole world with your computer. Who would have believed that you would have access to information all over the world? So people today should be able to make the change faster because they've seen more change. The rate of change is getting closer and closer, you know, faster and faster. So. If we don't change fast enough, we're going to become a have-not nation. We may already have been headed that way.
Okay, sorry about that, folks. Uh, it looks like I had my mic muted. Um, what I was talking about earlier, actually, that was a uh, excerpt from a um, interview with Mr. Fresco called, um, on the show called Living on Purpose. Uh, I originally downloaded it off of the uh, internet on the Venus Project website. I guess it's not available anymore. Uh, I guess it's a good thing I still have the MP3. Um, but anyway, as yeah, I was just uh, I was going to suggest um, you're the guy who uh, runs the Ventrilo for the, uh, or at least one of the, you know, I guess it, I wouldn't say it's official necessarily, but the, you run a Ventrilo server for, for the Zeitgeist movement. Um, I would uh, I basically, just, first of all, I'd want to thank you <laughs> for going through and doing that, um, yeah. being somebody who does that myself. But not to mention the fact you're the person who puts together those Ventrilo podcasts that I've partaken of myself. Um, but uh, anyway, um, I wanted to ask you actually. What, what was when did you first become exposed to the Zeitgeist movement? Oh, um, well, that was back in uh, October 2008, I believe. Uh, my friend said, "Hey, you got to check out this movie Zeitgeist." And I was like, "Oh, okay." And uh, I didn't know how to spell it. Obviously, it's German for Spirit of the Age, and uh, so I just put it off for a while. And when I finally got around to it on Google Video, I was like, "Wow!" And it just so happened that like a month later, it said that the addendum would be out. So I was like really hyped up to that. So when Addendum came out, like the day it was out, I watched it, completely agreed with it, and just whoa, blown away by everything the Venus Project said. And it didn't really take me long to even comprehend their idea. It's more common sense, though, isn't it? The the whole concept of it. So that's really first, I guess, November of uh, 2008. Well, you know, actually, yeah, I know what you mean about it being common sense. And uh, one of the things that Jacques just said in the, in the interview clip that I played was that you know it would be difficult for some people to get it because, you know. Uh, it is very different uh, than what we're used to. We're not accustomed to not, you know, be, being in a situation where we're not entirely enslaved to a monetary system. So, um, have you, I, I heard you've obviously been listening to the broadcast. Um, were you listening to any of the book reading? I was, yeah, but it was. Uh, I had some a few issues at home where I had to like pop in and out at times. But it was basically just refreshing my memory on a few of the things. But. Uh, you know, it, I was in and out. It, it's a bit difficult right here at home. I'm not actually being affected by the monetary system myself. I actually, uh, before the show happened, um, some like about five or six teenagers outside stole a bin, and we presumed it was ours. And I had to go out and it was, you know, look for this. Oh, and I had to deal with the police when they called to actually deal with that. So it was. It's been a bit strange tonight. So yeah, wow. I, I, I couldn't focus so they on stole it. a. You said they stole a bin. Well, yeah, my sister's friends were over, and they were upstairs. They started screaming, and they said, like, some people just took their bin, our bin, and uh, I put on my shoes and ran out. And funny enough, they left the door open for my dog to run out and just run across the street, so I had to get him back. And basically, anarchy, you know, anarchy for about an hour. <laughs> wow. So uh, we had... Oh, not sure what that was. Is that coming from you? No, nothing's coming from me. Hmm. Yep. That sounds... Okay. Oh, I know what it is. There we go. <laughs> I was accidentally playing my own broadcast, and uh, that was interesting. Old professional of you. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? Well, like I said to my listeners earlier, I've been... um, uh, It's just been... I've been rusty, because I haven't done this in quite a while. Right. Um, 
me pull up my switchboard again. Oh, good. We're still on live. Uh, but anyway, um, for those of you who are new to Blog Talk Radio, uh, if you had any questions about the Venus Project, uh, as the quote-unquote or an official spokesman, dum dum dum, uh, you can call me at one three four seven nine four five seven seven four seven. That's one three four seven. Nine four five seven seven four seven. Our lines are open. Four six. Uh, no, that's for the host pin, or that's for the host number. Um, the guest call-in number is four seven. <laughs> it's up along the top, if you look. Um, but anyway, yeah, unless you were going to try to call in and host my show, the four six number won't help you. <laughs> but anyway. Um, how has the how have the Ventrilo podcast been going? Uh, I mean, has there been a good response? Uh, people commenting on it? Well, the last one we had was the fourth podcast or colloquium, which is uh, another word for I think dictionary or collection of words. But uh, it was basically folklorist's idea. He's a moderator on the forum, but we had uh, over thirty one, thirty two people in the actual room, and we were talking about the uh, New Zealand project, uh, the New Zealand. Uh, which is basically um, a few hundred people have been organizing this, uh, you know, Venus Project sort of society in, in a certain area in New Zealand, and they chose it for its uh, geographical location, humidity, and et cetera. So it's a really nice place to start. And I was interviewing the people who set up the Zeitgeist resources, who made the transition plan uh, video, who made um, the resource-based economy foundation and who actually accidentally got into a lot of trouble with Roxanne and Peter because they figured they were a fraudulent site and it sparked a whole kind of a little misunderstanding. So I talked to them for an hour and a half and uh, I actually had someone else host one with, uh, I think Adrian was his name, and we had people like Zach Donife and uh, Bram and Flomore talking about uh, ideas for a Venus Project movie. And they were, you know, talking about how they'd like to see, you know, changes, comparisons, uh, how shots would be laid out. And that, that went pretty well into it. And they did a really nice job. I think that went on for about 47 minutes. You can find this all up on the forum, on the news section. It's Sticky Bear, it's a Trillo podcast. And uh, it's got a flash base system. You can just click it and listen to it. And you can download it as an MP3 from Falcon. All right. Well, for those of you who are tuning in, who are just listeners from mine from previous, you can go to the the forums he's talking about by Google searching <clears throat> the Zeitgeist Movement. You can uh, pick the language of the forum you want in question. Obviously, he's talking about the English one. Now, uh, I actually hadn't heard about this uh, about somebody getting in trouble with Roxanne and Peter. Can you elaborate exactly on what that was about? Right. Uh, so they had their resource-based economy foundation, which was basically a kind of test prototype for, say, donations to this foundation, which would then allocate the money that you gave into this foundation to specific resources or specific tools for the, the New Zealand project or any other project that you choose. And if they, right. you wanted to get a shovel for the New Zealand project, uh, you would pick shovel, you'd pay $5, and uh, you'd basically get complete transparency on everything. And uh, That was interesting. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. That's um, okay. Yeah, again, unprofessional. So basically, <laughs> this resource-based economy would be sending out, uh, I've actually signed up with a test, they send out test emails for like a project denied, and it would basically, it's just all leading up to this whole system that these people are de devising 
to try and help organize the movement or well, they're not officially the movement, but so right. that somehow through the you know, it, it word traveled up on some blogs and Roxanne caught a hold of it, you know, and uh, she kind of apparently got a bit freaked out and she thought it was another fraud site because I've heard from Peter or the admins at least that they get a lot of trouble with fraud sites, you know, pretending to be the the Venus Project officially. And they would say stuff like, oh, donate to the Venus Project and, you know, X amount of money because it's just a complete rip-off. Yeah. And uh, the fact that it said on the website, I think, copyright the zeitgeist moving the Venus Project because they were trying to show that their content wasn't theirs. But to some legal issues, you have to say you're not actually affiliated with them. So uh, basically, Peter and Roxanne went through the forum and they basically sent out a few people on the media email and they sent out email to them and they made a big post on the news section and it basically all expanded from this giant misunderstanding and uh, it also the fact that the research-based economy was talking about donations but it wasn't actually active it was just testing algorithms and all of this but well did it get resolved that I guess would be the question it did get resolved but unfortunately one of the users left the forum over because he felt a bit personally offended that they uh, they didn't even realize that they were actually, you know, members of the, the actual forum, that these weren't, you know, they, they, they actually claimed in one of their, like, uh, their main posts that it was a fraud site without mm -hmm. any evidence for it. So it was, it was a big misunderstanding. The admin did apologize, and I don't know, I think uh, there was something Karen mentioned that actually apologized. Uh, but it, it went, it, uh, there was a, it, it was basically resolved, but it was, it was messy. Well, it sounds to me like um, uh, basically... Um, I understand where they're coming from because as a former member of the quote-unquote Ron Paul revolution, there was a lot of that. There were a lot of like little schemes and such that people were doing to try to get money together, um, claiming that you know they were doing it for one project or another for Ron Paul. There were a lot of websites you could go to where you could buy t-shirts and such where you were thinking that you were buying stuff to help Ron Paul in his campaign, and it turned out that you were actually just buying some you know individual person's you know t-shirts where he's essentially making money on Ron Paul at that point. So I get where they were probably concerned about it. Um, that these sort of, Unfortunately, any political movement ends up with these sorts of situations where you get people that are doing that. Um, but I'm glad that it got resolved, and I hope that the New Zealand thing uh, works out. Um, actually, uh, I don't know if you uh, had a chance to watch it, but um, I watched a movie today about Hugo Chavez um, and the, the circumstances surrounding the coup there was a couple of um, British journalists, I guess, who were, like, allowed to bring their cameras in there through the whole thing. Like, they were in the, you know, the palace and, you know, not the palace, but, you know, what I mean, the, the federal building where, they, you know, they, where Hugo lived and, you know, they were interviewing him. Or generally, it was actually just like you were being a fly on the wall through the whole incident. And um, it really, it gave me an interesting impression, first of all, of Mr. Chavez himself, not, you know, never mind the fact that his people loved him so much that they were able to uprise against the new interim government and get their president back. I didn't know it had gone that far. When you, when you watch Sight Guys to Denim, they talk about, you know, a, you know, an attempted coup and how they overcame it, but, uh, the, the video I would advise to anybody actually, um, is called, um, you can find it on Google Video. The, the revolution will not be televised because um, the other thing that went on is that uh, Mr. Chavez took constant trouble from the private media um, and the only public media, they actually ended up like seizing 
like using the military to seize to prevent Mr. Chavez from talking about what was going on or telling anybody what his side of the story was. So, you know, it's interesting because uh, Hugo Chavez is a is a socialist, obviously, um, but uh, being an anti-capitalist, obviously, you know, he must all you know also be you know in bed with Castro or something was what they were always accusing him of, but. Uh, recently, he had come forward and said that capitalism must end and be replaced with socialism. I've already talked a little bit on this broadcast about the flaws of socialism as you see them you know, actually developing here in Michigan because the socialist programs that people depend on are crumbling uh, because once you have no money circulating, it, it doesn't help the socialist programs any more than it does the capitalist system. Um, but anyway, uh, I want to thank you for coming on today and... Uh, I'm glad that you were listening for whatever you could through uh, dealing with the police because somebody stole your yeah. bin. Now, for all of us Americans out there, by bin, what do you mean? I mean, as in your garbage bin or... Somebody stole your garbage can. Well, no, the thing was, my sister and her friend freaked out so much that they failed to realize it wasn't our bin. That they just... <laughs> yeah. I, I, was, I was just like wait a second, you just made me run out into five degrees Celsius, of course, not Fahrenheit. Rain and gale force winds to find people stole their neighbor's bin and not our one. And so they stole I'm, someone else's bin. Yeah, and you say, I, my, my mother came back and I explained to her what happened and she says, but our bin is at the back garden and I just went out and checked and I was like, ah. Right. <laughs> you see, folks, um, here we have clear evidence that the monetary system is failing because it drives people to steal one another's garbage cans. <laughs> well, anyway, um, thanks a lot, Azzy. I've got about six minutes left. I think I'm going to read a little bit more of my book. You can either disconnect or you can stay on and listen this way. It's up to you. I'll, I'll let you. I'll disconnect. I'll, I'll All right. Thanks Take care, Azzy, and uh, I hope you'll finish listening. I will. All right. Chapter 3, The Language of Relevance. Of the many entrenched barriers to positive change, communication is one of the most intractable. Um, intractable, my apologies. Um, okay, good. Still connected, no problem. Language has evolved over centuries through ages of scarcity, superstition, and social insufficiency, and it is continuing to evolve. However, language often contains ambiguity and uncertainty when important issues are at stake and fails to use precise and universal intelligible means of conveying knowledge. It is difficult for the average person, or even those considered above average, including leaders of nations, to share ideas with others whose worldview may be at a considerable variance with their own. Also because of semantic differences and different experiences, words have various shades of meaning. What would happen if we made contact with an alien civilization when we have such difficulty making contact with our fellow human beings? We are not ready for that. We haven't yet learned to resolve international differences by peaceful methods, so peace is simply a pause between wars. Even in the United States, supposedly the most technologically advanced country in the world, we lack a unified, definitively stated direction. Our policies and goals are fragmented and contradictory. The Democrats cannot communicate meaningfully with the Republicans. 
Elsewhere, the Israelis opposed the Arabs, the Irish Catholics clashed with the Irish Protestants, the Serbs with the Muslims. Everywhere, there is an interracial and impersonal disharmony, an inability of husbands and wives to communicate with each other or their children, labor and management strife, and communists differing with capitalists. How then could we hope to establish any meaningful communication with an alien civilization, with beings possessing intelligence, social coherence, and technologies far in advance of our own? The aliens might well wonder whether there really is any intelligent life on Earth. Most world leaders seek to achieve greater communication and understanding among the nations of the world. Unfortunately, their efforts have met with little success. One reason is that each comes to the table determined to achieve the optimal advantage for their own nation. We talk a lot about global development and global cooperation, but the global in each case reflects the individual nation's interests and not those of all people. In addition, we are trapped within old ways of looking at our world. While most agree change is necessary, many limit change if it is threatens their advantage, just as on a personal basis they seek change in others, but not in themselves. Many of us lack the skills to communicate logically when we are emotionally invested in an outcome. If a person or group has difficulty in communicating a point in question, Rather than seek clarification, they will raise their voices. If this does not produce the desired effect, they may include profanity or intimidating language. If this doesn't work, they may resort to physical violence, punishment, or deprivation as a means of achieving a desired behavior. In some instances, deprivation of the means of earning a living has been, and continues to be, used. These tactics have never produced a heightened level of understanding. In fact, many of these attempts to control behavior actually increased violence and drove the parties farther apart. It will be difficult for a future historian to understand why the language of science and technology was not incorporated into everyday communication. Ambiguity may help lawyers, preachers, and politicians, but it doesn't work in building bridges, dams, power projects, flying machines, or in space travel. For these activities, we need the language of science. Despite a maze of ambiguity in normal conversation, the more serviceable language of science is coming into use throughout the world, particularly in technologically advanced countries. If communication is to improve, we need a language that correlates highly with the environment and human needs. We already have a language in the scientific and technological communities, and it's easily understood by many. In other words, it is already possible to use a coherent means of communication without ambivalence. If we, if we apply the same methods used in the physical sciences, the psychology, sociology, and the humanities, a lot of unnecessary conflict could be resolved. In engineering, mathematics, chemistry, and other technical fields, we have the nearest thing to a universal descriptive language that requires little in the way of individual interpretation. For instance, if a blueprint for an automobile is used in any technologically developed society anywhere in the world, the finished product would be the same as that in other areas receiving the same blueprint regardless of their political or religious beliefs. The language used by the average person is inadequate for resolving conflict, but the language of science is relatively free of ambiguities and the conflicts prevalent in our everyday emotionally driven language. It is deliberately designed as opposed to evolving haphazardly throughout centuries of cultural change to state problems in terms that are verifiable and readily understood by most. 
Well, that's all I really have time for today. Um, I'm probably going to take the show size back down to a single hour. I just um, wanted to give time for me explaining why I'm not a market capitalist anymore and time to read some of the book. I hope you've enjoyed this broadcast. I apologize once again for how rough it is. It's been a while since I've done that. And um, thanks again for tuning in. Feel free to give this link to And uh, you are listening to V-Radio. Good night.